Hi, my name is Daniel Bird, and I'm a petroleum engineering senior here with the BCM. We've been marching through Romans and we'll continue on today in chapter four. In our first three chapters, we've spent a lot of time on some less than cheerful topics. Namely, that we as humans are absolutely depraved. Having completely abandoned God, we are fully deserving of his wrath and judgment. And on our own, we are completely unable to achieve any sort of right standing before God. However, thankfully, we did start getting into some good news last week with Grant. Namely, that Jesus came and died so that God could be both just and the justifier of sinful humans. Now, we're going to continue this on a lot more in Romans chapter 4. We're on with a lot more of the good news and what that looks like. And in doing so, Paul is going to outline uh, Abraham as an extended example of how he was considered righteous. So then we can see how we, like him, can also be considered righteous. Now, in this, the topic of faith is going to show up a lot. And I'm going to use the terms faith, trust, and believe pretty interchangeably because they mean pretty much the same things as well as we have a much better intuition for the meaning of trust than faith. So do with that what you will. And if while I read, you notice that my translation is a little different than yours, that's because I will be reading out of the complete Jewish Bible. But without further ado, let's dive into Romans chapter 4. Then, what shall we say? Abraham, our forefather, obtained by his own efforts. For if Abraham came to be considered righteous by God because of observing the law, then he has something to boast about. But this is not how it is before God. For what do the scriptures say? Abraham put his trust in God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now, the account of someone who is working is credited not on the ground of grace, but on the ground of what is owed him. However, in the case of one who is working, uh, who is not working, but rather is trusting in him who makes ungodly people righteous, his trust is credited to him as righteousness. In the same way, the blessing which David pronounces is on those whom God credits with righteousness apart from observance of the law. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over, Blessed is the man whose sin Yahweh will not reckon against his account. Now, is this blessing for the circumcised only, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Abraham's trust was credited to his account as righteousness, but in what state was he in when it was so credited? Circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In fact, he received circumcision as a sign as a seal of the righteousness he had been credited with on the ground of trust he had while he was still uncircumcised. This happened so that he could be uh, father of every uncircumcised person who trusts and thus has righteousness credited to him, and at the same time be the father of every circumcised person who not only has been circumcised, but also follows in the footsteps of the trust which Abraham our father had when he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his seed that he would inherit the world 
did not come through legalism, but through the righteousness that trust produces. For if the heirs are produced by legalism, then trust is pointless and the promise worthless. For what law brings is punishment, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. The reason the promise is based on trust is so that it may come as God's free gift, a promise that can be relied on by all the seed, not only those who live within the framework of the law, but also those with the kind of trust Abraham had, Abraham, who is the father of us all. This accords with the scriptures, where it is said, I have appointed you to be a father to many nations. Abraham is our father in God's sight because he trusted God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls non-existent things into existence. For he was past hope, yet in hope, he trusted that he would indeed become a father to many nations. In keeping with what had been told, so many will your seed be. His trust did not waver when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered that Sarah's womb was dead too, he did not by lack of trust decide against God's promises. On the contrary, by trust he was given power as he gave glory to God, for he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he would also accomplish. This is why it was credited to his account as righteousness. But the words, it was credited to his account, were not written for him only. They were also written for us, who will certainly have our account credited too, because we have trusted in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, Jesus, who is delivered over to death, because of our offenses and raised to life in order to make us righteous. Now, there's a lot in this chapter, so we're going to have to go quickly and we won't be able to get to everything. However, Paul starts with a word of good news to those who are striving, those who are striving to live according to the law and to do so in order to gain right standing before God. This word that he gave was that through observing the law, no one can be made righteous. Let me explain how this is good news. So for those who were uh, striving to live according to the law, they must strive to do enough, to be good enough, to follow every count of the law lest they be a transgressor. Or to put it succinctly, they have to be enough. However, this is contrary to the way of faith because those who have their trust in God know they aren't enough. No matter how much I try to be enough or want to be, I never will be enough, nor have I ever. But praise the Lord, I don't have to be enough because Christ is enough and he offers to be our everything and through him for us to be counted as righteous. This is the word to those who are striving. But then he continues on to a word to those who already feel that they aren't enough and are losing hope. This is through the blessing which David pronounces. And this blessing is beautifully realistic in that he doesn't say blessed are those who have kept the law or blessed are the perfect and the sinless. No. David here is blessing 
those whose sins aren't held against them. For the blessing is to those who aren't enough, but for whom Christ is their everything. Now, with this blessing, this opportunity for forgiveness, is it available only to the circumcised or is it also available for the uncircumcised? Now, when I talk about circumcision here, I'm referring to it as circumcision is the thing that symbolizes all that makes Judaism Judaism. All the culture, the covenant, and uh, the practices, all of them come together in circumcision. Circumcision symbolizes everything that made Israel special as God's chosen people, set apart from every other nation. And as such, they treasured it dearly. And so there were many in Rome and elsewhere at the time who were making the claim that this blessing of forgiveness, to get it, you had to first become a Jew if you were not. And you must submit yourself to the law and the customs of the Jews. However, Paul is going to say here that they have their order backwards. For we don't have to submit ourselves to the law through circumcision because Abraham hadn't yet been. For when Abraham was credited as righteousness, uh, when Abraham's trust was credited to him as righteousness, he was not yet circumcised. He was still uncircumcised. Indeed, circumcision itself was the symbol of the righteousness that Abraham already had. So as such, it had no place in earning the righteousness in the first place. It was merely a symbol to him and to those around him of what had already been achieved. And through this, Abraham, although they treasured him, uh, they the Jews, uh, they treasured him as their father. But here through faith, non-Jews can also embrace Abraham as their father, as the heirs of his trust. Now, with the promise of forgiveness being opened up to those who were not Jews, those who are uncircumcised, then the question becomes, what place does the law even have? Paul addresses this in saying that, well, the place of the law is to reveal transgression. Its place is to remind us that we aren't enough, we never will be. And as such, should hopefully lead us to embrace through trust God who is enough. However, for those who slave under the law as their means for seeking right standing before God, for them, the righteousness of trust and the promise that is based upon trust, they're worthless. They, they have nothing. Now, the connection between the promises of God here and trust, that's a really important one. In fact, I would call it the first object of trust. Now, what I mean by that is very grammatical. For belief, trust, faith, they all require an object, namely 
something to believe in, something to trust in, something to have faith in. And what that is, the first thing, is the promises of God. This was the case for Abraham when he was a pagan back in his homeland. God broke into his life and God told him that he was to leave his fatherland because God would give him another, a better one. God said it, Abraham believed it, and he left and ended up going all the way to Canaan, which would eventually be his descendants. Now, this promise and all the other promises of God, really, these are passed down to Abraham's seed here. Now, seed here would normally be referring to his physical descendants. Although, as we touched on earlier and as is further confirmed here, it is not referring to those who have inherited Abraham's DNA, but to those who have inherited his faith, whether they are his descendants physically or whether they are not, whether they are circumcised or uncircumcised. It is to these whom Abraham will truly be the father of. And it is through this, in part, that the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations is fulfilled. And indeed, initially, though, that Abraham would be a father of many nations, this did hinge initially on physical descendants, namely a son. And when God initially promised this, Abraham, he had no kids. He was getting quite old, and his wife was old as well, and she had been barren all their lives. So if they were to have kids, it would have probably had been decades before. Yet God promised it. So Abraham believed, and in his belief this time, he went from the first object of faith into the second one. Now the second one follows straight from the first. The second one being not only trusting in the promises of God, but in the very person and character of God. We see that when it says that he trusted God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls non-existent things into existence. For we can trust in the promises of God primarily because we know the one who promised them is faithful to bring them to completion. And here, Abraham was promised a son, yet he was approaching 100 years old, and his wife was barren. When it came to human things and the way we normally look at things, they, were, they might as well have been dead. Yet, they trusted in the one who gives life to the dead. And as, as for a son, he was non-existent, yet they believed in the one who brings the non-existent into existence. And it was in this trust that hope sprouted. And it says that, for he was past hope, yet in hope he trusted. This sounds like it's in conflict. For he was past hope, yet he continued in, tr in hope. However, there are two different hopes here. He was past a physical hope. Hope in the things that we can see and the things according to the natural order. For he had no hope. 
humanly, he wasn't going to have a son. The time for that was done. And then he was continuing in hope nonetheless. For the hope he continued in was a hope founded on the trust in an eternal God. And this hope could not be shaken by anything in the physical realm, for it was founded on the eternal God and on his character, person, promises, and power. And this all comes together in the conclusion of the example on Abraham. By trust he was given power and had a son and called him Isaac. And in, he did so as he gave glory to God. This is the purpose of God's redeeming sinners in the first place. So they can give glory to God. This is the ultimate end of trust. This is the ultimate end of everything is so that we can give glory to God. And then it closes with the final confirmation in the character of God. For Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, he would also accomplish. This is why it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now the example of Abraham is over here in verse 22. But the chapter continues for a little while longer. For the purpose of this chapter is not merely so we would understand Abraham and how he was able to obtain right standing before God by faith, but is so that we could join him in that. And we can do so because we trust in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, I want to make sure you understand the gravity of that title, our Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, you probably, if you've been around BCM or the church very long, you've probably heard the verse that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is an amazing promise, but we have to understand that it hinges on Jesus' Lordship. Now, when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean Jesus has absolute authority over all things, for he is the creator and the sustainer of everything. And not only that, for those of us who have been credited as righteousness by staking our faith in him, we are also his by redemption, for he purchased us at the cost of his blood from the possession of the enemy. So we are his by redemption and creation. And as such, he has the right to command and direct us to do whatever he wishes according to his purposes and his good pleasure. This might rub against some of you. This might rub you the wrong way. For this goes against our American um, sense of autonomy and self-supremacy. However, those are rooted in a desire to be enough, to be sufficient. And so the call here is to recognize that you aren't enough. And so trade your life for Christ's who is enough and submit yourself to his lordship. And not only that, 
continues on. So God raised him from the dead. Now, death is the most powerful of all natural phenomenon because it is inescapable. Well, was inescapable until Jesus conquered it. Then, Jesus, who was delivered to death because of our offenses. So the reason Jesus had to die in the first place was because of our crimes against God. They demanded punishment and he paid it in full on the cross. And when he died, he took them into the grave, yet he left them there and rose again in glory and righteousness as he will raise us up who have been credited as righteous. Now, this is good news. And the question remains, will we trade our life for Christ's? Fully acknowledging that we are not enough and making him our everything. Are you ready? But now, let's pray. God, I thank you for making a way for us to be reconciled back to you. God, I thank you for what you've done and what you have yet to do. I pray that you will continually remind us of our own insufficiency so that you will remind us of your complete sufficiency. God, I pray that you would be with us. It's for this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.